This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Peter Sutcliffe. Peter William Sutcliffe was born on June 2nd, 1946, making him a Gemini in Bingley, Yorkshire. And as we always do, let's see what was going on in that part of the world at that time. So we see 1946 in the UK as post-World War II times. The first international flight from London Heathrow Airport to Buenos Aires was made possible. The Bank of England was nationalized. The American dance craze, called the Jitterbug, was becoming massively popular in Britain. Winston Churchill delivered his, quote, Iron Curtain speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri in the United States. First-class cricket returns, as well as league football, after having been suspended during the war. Television broadcasting by the BBC returned, which was also suspended during World War II. And in fact, a victory parade was held in London to celebrate the end of that war. For the more low-income families, the family allowance was introduced, which was a cash benefit paid to mothers. UK state schools provided daily free milk to all pupils under the age of 18. Going out to a movie theater reached an all-time peak with 1,635 million admissions during that year. The University of Bristol established the first university drama department in the UK. And as far as birthdays go, we've actually got some pretty notable people. So in 1946, Led Zeppelin's bassist, John Paul Jones, was born. So was Pink Floyd guitarist and singer Sid Barrett. Serial killer Harold Shipman was born. And the forever beloved English actor Alan Rickman was also born. So getting into his childhood... Peter's parents were John William Sutcliffe and Kathleen Frances Coonan. 
John Sutcliffe, a member of the Church of England, at one time had been an apprentice at a bakery. While working, he met and began dating Kathleen. John had joined the military, though, and the two got married while he was on leave in 1945. John was mostly stationed in Gibraltar. And always the entertainer, it is said that he sang and acted scenes out to bring up the other soldiers' morale as they went out to the front lines. Kathleen gave birth to Peter a year after she and John had gotten married. Peter was born in a rather small stone cottage prematurely, so he was rushed to the hospital where he had to stay for two weeks with his mother because his mother had hemorrhaged some and Peter was so weak they did not think that he would survive. Now, due to him being a premature baby and also being described as sickly, he was quite small for his age. Kathleen was very devoutly Catholic. Since her husband was unwaveringly Church of England, you can imagine that would be an issue. Kathleen would hear nothing of any form of birth control, as is the Catholic belief, or was at that time. So she became pregnant again quickly after having Peter and gave birth to a little boy, Thomas. Unfortunately, Thomas died three days after he was born. Undeterred, Kathleen and John went on to have five other children in rapid succession. Peter was described as a very quiet and anxious little boy, quite introverted. His father was a very jealous man and constantly accused Kathleen of having various affairs. Interesting though, considering it was John who was the one sleeping around. You see, John was a big, burly, sporty, and sociable man, an extrovert, if you will, and he liked to drink, and he drank a lot. But needless to say, Peter had a close and loving relationship with his mother, and by close, I mean he was intensely clingy to her. He didn't want to leave her side and had no interest in playing with other children. He was timid and insecure. Kathleen wasn't bothered by this. To the contrary, she soaked up all of the love and attention that Peter gave her. She lavished him with love and attention in return. I mean, to Peter, his mother could do no wrong. And as he went through his childhood, he was taught the Catholic ways. Kathleen taught her children that women should always be reserved, modest, shy, and respected. So at some point, his father would drunkenly begin announcing that Peter's mother was an adulterer. John belittled Kathleen horribly in front of their children, saying that she was sleeping around with other men. As a result, the tall and pristine pedestal that Peter had always had his mother on began to crumble. Now, whether or not Kathleen was having any affairs was irrelevant. In Peter's mind, his mother, who was the epitome of the perfect and pious woman, was forever changed. From then on, he had a very confused and distrusting view on women. Then, to add to this damaging recipe, John not only was a womanizer, but he also physically abused his wife 
pregnant or not. Peter's siblings would later say that their father was indeed a, quote, monster. When Peter was four years old, he attended St. Joseph's Catholic Primary School. There, he was bullied because he was physically smaller than his peers, which is common for premature babies, and also because he was so incredibly shy and withdrawn. As he moved on into secondary school, the bullying never stopped. The other boys called him a, quote, nesh, which meant soft, weak, and unmasculine. In fact, it just continued to get worse. The bullying got worse, and it got so intense that he began skipping school regularly and hiding in a loft in the family home. The reprieve from all of society was soothing to him, and this was unfortunate because he was actually a pretty intelligent child. It was obvious. However, the teachers told his parents that he should not be encouraged to continue his education past secondary school because with so many younger children at home, John and Kathleen would most likely need Peter to go out and make money for the family. Way to be supportive. So while at home and with puberty coming on, he began to lift weights, which he actually really enjoyed. And not only was it a way to blow off some steam, but he also wanted to work on his body, make it stronger and have more muscle to stop the constant teasing about him being small. When he actually didn't skip school and go, the girls did begin to notice him as he was a very handsome youth, but he was so cripplingly shy he didn't act on any flirtations that came his way. He also didn't involve himself in any school activities except he did try his hand at a few sports, though he wasn't terribly successful there either. There is a story that, even though we know John was cheating on his wife regularly, when John found out that Kathleen had planned to meet a lover at a local hotel, Sutcliffe's father demanded his children, including Peter, to go with him and wait in the room Kathleen and the supposed lover had booked. She opened the door to the room and was shocked to find her husband and children waiting for her. I mean, she didn't really care that John knew, but she was so very ashamed for her children to be there. Loudly, John called her a prostitute and forced Kathleen to open up her purse, revealing the lingerie she had packed for the romantic evening. As Peter got on in his teenage years, it was said that he was also reportedly fascinated with sexually transmitted diseases of all sorts. He went to a local wax museum and was absolutely fascinated by the effects of sexually transmitted diseases on the human body and how these afflictions caused pain and misery to their sufferers. At 15 years old, he decided he was done with school and he dropped out. Most all of Peter's life, his father had worked as a weaver at a mill and Peter decided to go work there, but it didn't last long. He got an apprenticeship at the Briarley and Fairbank Engineering Works. It would take some time to learn how to do this particular work and Peter found he had just grown bored and left. 
around this time, Christmas Day of 1961, when Peter was 15, his father was suddenly arrested for burglary. The local newspaper printed the incident. This is what the article said. Quote, 39-year-old weaver John William Sutcliffe admitted stealing foodstuffs valued at 19 shillings 7 and one half D and was conditionally discharged for 12 months on payment of costs. He was on his way home from a Christmas Eve party which lasted until 4.30 a.m. on Christmas Day. Some young people in another room were having a party which was just about breaking up. On hearing a light switch in the kitchen, they went to investigate just in time to see Sutcliffe, whom they recognized, making a dash for the door. Some youths chased him down the road, caught him, and sent for the police. As he ran, Sutcliffe left a trail of packets of raisins, sweets, etc. behind him, which he had stuffed into his pockets. He was genuinely sorry for the theft because the complainants were distant relatives of his and hitherto he had a perfectly clean record." Unquote. So interesting news article, but nonetheless was hugely embarrassing to the whole family. In Peter's later teens, the 60s were becoming the blossoming era, you know, the age of Aquarius that we all know it was, free love and drugs and music. But Peter really didn't seem interested in that, particularly the girls. What Peter was passionate about was motorcycles, cars, and drinking with the few friends that he did have. One friend actually had this to say about him at that time. Quote, he was very backward at coming forward with girls other than his sisters. If we were in a pub and a couple of girls came in who Peter liked the look of, he would mention it, but he never seemed to have it in him to go and talk to them. I got the impression that he thought that chatting up girls was somehow distasteful. I often wonder if it was anything to do with the fact that when we were back at the Sutcliffe's house at night, his father, on occasions, would openly flatter his sister's friends and pretend to fondle them. He would reckon to mess with them. There was no harm done, but it seemed to make Peter uncomfortable. He was always much closer to his mother." Unquote. Another friend of Peter's from back in the day said this, quote, we were on holiday together on a caravan site in the Lake District and done night we we pretty drunk. We were both down to our underpants getting ready to turn in when I made some sort of remark about sex. Peter picked up a knife and jumped on me shouting, quote, I'm going to cut your dick off, you bastard. I'm a big bloke, but he was like a mad thing and I just couldn't stop him. He seemed possessed of some sort of super strength. It was only when he slashed my private parts that he calmed down. He went pale and said, quote, Sorry, Steve, I'd better get you to the hospital. Unquote. It took several stitches to stop the bleeding. So, since he dropped out of school and was actively working, then we will say that that is the end of Peter's childhood. So as you can see, Peter was already displaying troubling behaviors from a young age, but I think we can see why. According to AAFP.org, domestic violence is an ongoing experience of physical, 
psychological and or sexual abuse in the home that is used to establish power and control over another person. We know that Peter's father was verbally and physically abusive to his mother and the children witnessed it. Children witnessing domestic violence can lead them to develop a whole host of negative cognitive, behavioral, and emotional issues. They are at a much higher risk for internalizing behaviors that lead to anxiety and depression. They are also at a higher risk for externalizing behaviors like fighting and bullying. They're also much more likely to have social competence issues like performing poorly at school and having difficulty in relationships with others. Children who witness domestic abuse tend to have inappropriate attitudes about violence as a means of resolving conflict and generally use violence themselves. They have more emotional and behavioral problems than those that do not witness violence in the home. Some of the actual potential effects are lacking the feeling of safety, separation anxiety, stranger anxiety, regressive behaviors, aggressive behaviors, school truancy, delinquency. I mean, the list goes on and on. They are much less likely to have very many friends at school and tend to not participate in outside activities. As these kids age into teenagers, watching this abuse between parents results in an increased rate of risk-taking and antisocial behavior. So we see that Peter witnessing the very heated situation between his parents was bad enough. But then he was also bullied. NCBI.nlm.nih.gov states that bullying is the, quote, systematic abuse of power and is defined as aggressive behavior or intentional harm doing by peers that is carried out repeatedly and involves an imbalance of power, unquote. Victims have a higher risk of developing problems like anxiety or depression. Being bullied in primary school has been found to both predict borderline personality symptoms, and that's important, and psychotic experiences such as hallucinations or delusions by adolescents. Again, that part is very important. This issue will actually come into play later in our story. We also know that Peter's father actually took the kids with him to, quote, bust his wife having an affair. We know his father had a healthy history of doing this himself on top of being abusive. But look at it through Peter's eyes. His father was also popular amongst his own peers. He was into sports. He was extroverted and well-liked outside of the home. He was manly. I mean, all of these things that Peter was not. So on some level, we can imagine that Peter wished he could be so comfortable in society like his father was. And it's no wonder that his mother was going to have an affair. I mean, it would be difficult given her position in life and wanting to feel, you know, some kind of love would be understandable. But Peter idolized his mother. And once his father took her indiscretion and shoved it in Peter's face, it changed him forever. 
You see, back then, a man having an affair was something to raise an eyebrow at, but at the same time seemed to be somewhat tolerated. But that was not the case for women. So we have here a youth who was not only witnessing domestic violence, but was also bullied at school, and then the pedestal his mother was on crumbled to ash. So we see that this is a recipe for disaster. So outside of a few menial jobs, Peter took a job as a grave digger at Bingley Cemetery. Now this was a job that he actually found he enjoyed. He willingly volunteered for extra shifts, washing the bodies to prepare for the funeral, and was even known to jump down into the freshly dug graves. He would meet up with his friends or co-workers at local pubs and chat about the bodies and also necrophilia. One of his co-workers later stated, quote, One night we had been out boozing and had certainly had a few drinks when Peter mentioned that he had the key to the morgue. He said there were two ripe ones in there and suggested we should go and have a look at them. He seemed quite disappointed when we turned down his offer. On another occasion, he was reopening a grave at the cemetery and I saw him chasing some grammar school girls with an old skull. I thought that was a bit much, but Peter was very amused. He certainly had a morbid interest in death and all things connected with it. He told me that bodies from accidents and those which had been opened up for post-mortems were the ones he liked best. He had to wash them down and clean up the scalpels, the knives, and remains after autopsies. He used to go on and on about all the gory details. Unquote. Peter would also wait until after the funeral ceremony was over and the people had gone, and then he would jump down onto the casket, open the lid, and help himself to whatever valuables were on that body, that being mostly jewelry. On top of this behavior, he began getting into some trouble with the law. Small things mostly, such as not having a license plate on his car, um, and then began to grow into severity, such as attempting to break into cars. He would be arrested, bailed out, go to court, pay his fines. Slowly but surely, he was becoming known to law enforcement. According to the book, Yorkshire Ripper by Chris Clark and Tim Tate, on March 22, 1967, Peter Sutcliffe summoned himself a taxi driven by 27-year-old John Tomey. He first told John to drive him to Bradford, then changed his mind and asked to be taken to Bingley. Once they arrived, Peter told John that he didn't have any money for the fare and that his aunt could pay him and she lived in Lancashire. Nearly an hour's drive. Though suspicious, John decided he would drive him there. It didn't take long for John to get lost as he was, you know, not familiar with this area. He stopped his taxi and leaned toward the glove box to get his map. Peter then pulled out a ball-peen hammer and began hitting John in the back of the head, effectively knocking him out. Peter then got out. He went to the driver's side door, but it was locked. 
He then used his hammer to bust the window. But at that moment, John came to. He slammed his foot on the accelerator and he got away. John went to a cottage and the owners let him in and he called the police. At the hospital, it was discovered that the back of his skull had been fractured horribly. John never drove a taxi and was actually unable to work very much after this. He never went on to get married or have any children either. This changed him for the rest of his life. During this time, Peter obtained his license to drive big rigs. Lorries are what they call them. Lorries are what they call them in England. Tractor trailers or semis over here in the states. But he began making good money, and with that, he began hiring prostitutes. The once shy and unapproaching Peter now talked constantly about the women he paid to sleep with. And with his new and intense interest in prostitutes came a sexually transmitted disease that he had to seek out medical intervention for. Needless to say, he was alarmed and very angry. On February 14, 1967, Peter met Sonia Surma at a local pub during a disco night. I hope I didn't butcher her last name. He was now 21, she just 16 years old. Sonia had been born in Bradford, but her parents were refugees from the Second World War from Czechoslovakia. She was an average or just below student who just barely passed her exams for school and then went on to study to be a teacher. At this point, she and Peter had been dating for a few months. In February of the next year, the police were called to a horrifying scene. A woman's dead body was lying on the ground underneath some railway arches next to a church. She had been stripped naked and it was obvious that she had been attacked viciously. The damage to the back of her head and face were so severe, she could not be identified visually. Her body was taken in and, using her fingerprints, they determined she was 43-year-old Mary Judge, who had a record for prostitution. A young boy had been on a train and had briefly witnessed the attack. He described the attacker as a thin, young man with longer dark hair. Though it is pretty well known that Peter was the murderer, this particular incident went unsolved. There would be another murder of a local woman who was brutally murdered that could be linked to Sutcliffe, and it certainly closely resembled his preferred method, but it too was ultimately unsolved. On an evening in 1969, Peter had been out with one of his friends when a prostitute caught his eye. He separated himself from his friend, took one of his socks off, and put a heavy rock in it, then walked quickly up behind the woman and bashed her in the head with it. Luckily, the stone broke through the sock, catching Peter off guard enough that the woman was able to escape with her life and for whatever reason, she refused to press charges against him. In October of 1969, while he was still dating Sonia, 
Peter had been caught hiding in some bushes, carrying a hammer and a knife, and was arrested. But he was only charged with being, quote, equipped for theft and fined 25 pounds. On a more positive note, Peter also began buying old cars and fixing them up to sell. He didn't make a huge profit, but enough to be proud of himself. There was a brief time where he believed his girlfriend, Sonia, had actually been seeing an Italian man that drove an ice cream truck, but that eventually blew over and all was well. Sonia began to spend more time with Peter's family and was one of the only people with the ability to calm his constant mood swings with nothing but a stern look. But if Sonia wasn't around, Peter would still visit the red light districts. The couple did marry on August 10th, 1974 and after, Sonia suffered a number of miscarriages. The couple visited a doctor that told them that they would never be able to have children. Not even a year after his nuptials, Peter Sutcliffe went out one night and saw Anna Rogolsky. He approached her and asked her if she, quote, fancied it, to which she replied, quote, not on your life. She was already in a foul mood because her boyfriend had moved out of their house and had taken her kitten with him. She was on her way to where he had moved when Peter saw her. After she discovered her boyfriend wasn't home, she turned around to go back to her place and was approached by Peter again. Only this time he attacked her by bludgeoning her in the head with his hammer, knocking her unconscious. He then took a knife and slashed her abdomen. The commotion drew the attention of someone and Peter fled the scene. Anna did survive, but only just. On August 15, 1975, 46-year-old Olive Smelt had been out with some friends at a pub. Peter was also out with a friend drinking in that same pub when he began to make snide comments about the other women there, stating it was a bar for prostitutes and specifically singled out Olive. As Peter got up and walked toward the restroom, he said something untoward to Olive, who directly put him in his place. Later, Olive got a ride to somewhere near her house and was let out in front of a fish and chips store. She was hoping they would still be open so that she could pick up some food for herself and her husband, who was waiting at home. Peter also passed by and recognized her. He immediately stopped his vehicle. He ran out. He approached Olive and he smashed her in the head with his hammer twice. Once she was on the ground, he took his knife and slashed at her backside, but was again interrupted by another car coming near and he fled back to his own vehicle. Olive was found by a passerby and immediately taken to the hospital where she had to have emergency brain surgery and was admitted for 10 days. Her description of her attacker was a man around 30 years old, 5 foot 10, slightly built with dark hair and growth on his face. Just like Anna, 
all have suffered from emotional and mental health issues for the rest of her life. Twelve days later, 14-year-old Tracy Brown was walking home late one evening from visiting a friend. Peter saw her walking and approached her, saying, quote, nothing doing? She did agree that it was, in fact, a nice, quiet evening. They walked together for a bit, talking, and once they got close to her house, Peter bludgeoned Tracy five times in the back of her head. She begged him, saying, quote, please don't. And Peter was forced to stop because of a car nearing them. So he picked her up and he threw her over a fence. She was able to get help and had to have a four-hour brain surgery to fix her skull, including a fragment of bone that had pierced her brain. She described her attacker as a man in his late 20s or possibly early 30s with a, quote, dark Afro-style hair and beard, wearing a knitted V-neck cardigan over a light blue open-necked shirt, dark brown trousers, and brown suede shoes. She got a very good look at him because he was walking with her for a bit. And thankfully, Tracy did survive. On October 30th, 1975, 28-year-old Wilma McCann had been at a pub drinking whiskey and beer. She left the pub highly intoxicated, carrying with her a container of curry and fries. She attempted to get a ride home and was visibly stumbling around. Now at this time, Peter was driving through the area and he saw Wilma trying to hitch a ride. He pulled over, she got in the vehicle, and apparently, according to Peter, she propositioned him for sex and he pulled over very near her home. She told him that it would cost him a, quote, fiver. They got out of the car and he struck her several times in the head with that hammer. Peter then stabbed her repeatedly in the abdomen, the chest, and the neck. She was partially nude when her dead body was found several hours later. You see, Wilma had four children, and one of her daughters later committed suicide after suffering with depression for years after. So, of course, this began to gain tons of media attention, and more than 150 police officers began to investigate these attacks and this murder, even conducting... 11,000 interviews, but they just didn't have a suspect. In January 1976, 42-year-old Emily Jackson was having some serious money problems. She began using her family's van to prostitute herself out of, though she hated it very much. One night, she parked the van outside of a pub, attempting to solicit men when Peter approached her and agreed to pay, but wanted to go in his own car. Emily agreed. She got in his car and he drove to a rundown part of town. He then hit her in the head twice with his hammer. Once unconscious, he drug her into a yard, partially disrobed her, then used a Phillips head screwdriver and violently stabbed her 52 times all around her torso. 
He then found a small but long piece of wood, about two to three feet long, and, well, let's say he put it where it did not belong. She was found the next morning by a man on his way to work. On May 9, 1976, 20-year-old Marcella Claxton was leaving a party to go home around 4 a.m. Peter Sutcliffe was driving and saw her, so he decided to stop. She asked him for a ride and got in with him, and after driving a short distance, Peter offered her five pounds for sex and stopped the car. She did decline the offer, but she did also get out of the car and go behind a tree to relieve herself. Peter walked up to her and bludgeoned her nine times in the head with his hammer, then pleasured himself over her body, got in his car, and left. She miraculously survived with intense medical intervention. However, she had been pregnant and did suffer a miscarriage. Peter laid low for several months, but on February 5, 1977, 28-year-old Irene Richardson, who had been homeless for a short time, was down on her luck. She was walking along the street when Peter pulled his car alongside her. She did not even hesitate to get in with him. They agreed on a price and Peter drove off, taking her to very nearly the exact same spot where he had tried to kill Marcella. As they exited the car, Peter hit her in the head three times with his hammer. Part of her skull was lodged into her brain. He then proceeded to stab her repeatedly. He then casually covered her legs with her own coat and fled as he heard distant voices. A jogger discovered her the next morning. A couple of months later, 32-year-old prostitute Patricia Atkinson, who had been drinking pretty heavily in a pub, stated she was leaving. She clumsily walked out of the door around 11 p.m., again, as was his M.O., Peter was trolling the area and spotted her as she was yelling profanities at a random parked car. He pulled over and she got in with him and told him where she lived. As they parked and went inside, Peter hung up his coat. He then turned around and hit her four times in the head with his hammer, knocking her unconscious. She fell off of her bed, but he picked her up and put her right back on it then began hitting and slashing at her with both sides of the hammer. He stabbed her repeatedly, then tossed the blanket on the bed over her, and he left. But when Peter did leave, he noticed that he had blood on his clothes, which he promptly washed off. The next evening, a friend of hers found her and called the police, who found a boot print on her bedsheet. They determined it to be a size 7 Dunlop Warwick Wellington boot, which also matched prints from another crime scene. He was actually one of many, many men interviewed about these attacks. Actually, he was interviewed a total of nine times over the course of the investigation, but he was never suspected. 
Peter was now known in the media as the Yorkshire Ripper. He continued to hack, slash, and bludgeon women for years, undetected. Some survived, but most didn't. Then, on January 2nd, 1981, Peter was pulled over by the police when they noticed that his license plates didn't match the car he was driving. Once they stopped and approached his car, they noticed a female was with him, a known prostitute. He was somehow able to stash his murder weapons before he was officially arrested, but they were found during a search of that area where he was pulled over the next day. Once he was at the police station, the questioning began. I mean, due to him matching the physical description so perfectly and being in the company of a prostitute. Now, get this, guys. At the station, he was asked to remove his clothes. And it was at that point they realized he was wearing a V-neck sweater under his pants. So try to visualize this. He had his legs in the sleeves and the V part of the neck exposed his genitalia. It is thought that since the elbow part of the sweater was padded, that he was doing this as sort of knee pads while he was attacking women. Just a thought. On January 4th, Peter Sutcliffe finally admitted to being the Yorkshire Ripper. He described his many attacks and 13 murders in detail. The authorities got a search warrant for his home and they also brought in his wife Sonia for questioning. So after he was arrested and the trial was set to begin, Peter pled not guilty to all 13 counts of murder and 7 counts of attempted murder. He was evaluated by four different psychiatrists who all diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic. The judge rejected this plea and a trial by jury would occur. His trial lasted two weeks and he was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 30 years. Once in prison, though, he was again diagnosed with schizophrenia, but the courts refused to move him to a psychiatric unit. Then on January 10, 1983, Peter was followed by another dangerous inmate, attacked and given a, quote, Glasgow smile, which is where the person is cut from the inner corner of the mouth up the sides of their cheeks. The wounds required 30 stitches and he bears the permanent scar. He was also attacked another time where he ultimately lost his right eye. Not feeling sorry for him though. Peter was then sent to Broadmoor Hospital, which is a high security psychiatric hospital in Berkshire, England. It is a very famous hospital in the UK, and I actually recommend you get on YouTube and look up some documentaries about it. It is fascinating. So, as of this recording in July 2019, Peter is now 73 years old. It is said that he is nearly blind, he has breathing issues, high blood pressure, and diabetes. And he has been prescribed many medications to help him with these medical issues. Reports from people who are around him state he has trouble sleeping and he states that he is haunted.
by the faces of his victims. A close source to the star said that his life expectancy is short and he could be dead in a matter of weeks, that his health has been on a steady decline. He is having health assessments weekly to monitor him and he spends most of his time alone in his cell. So I wanted to get this podcast out because that way when something happens to him and if it does soon, then you will have this information. So, Peter was able to fool psychiatrists into believing him when he stated he heard voices that told him to kill prostitutes. He was, in fact, not a schizophrenic, but rather a sexually compelled predator who planned his attacks and knew what he was doing was wrong. Now, you'll have people argue with me there. Some sources do say that he was, in fact, a schizophrenic and responded well to the antipsychotic medications he was given. Other sources say he was manipulative enough to, quote, pull the wool over everyone's eyes. So, you will have to be the judge of that for yourself. And now, due to the success of the Ted Bundy tapes, as well as the Madeline McCann story, word around the campfire is that Netflix will now do a program on Peter. It has been verified that producers have visited relatives of some of the slain women, as well as some of his survivors. There are many other attacks that are believed to be linked to Peter, but there just wasn't enough evidence to charge him with. And they are exploring that. So, we will all be looking forward to that from Netflix. So, in the case of Peter Sutcliffe, I do not believe that he was born to kill. As we learned earlier, witnessing domestic abuse as a child has devastating effects on their mental state then and in the foreseeable future. Couple that with the bullying he experienced as a kid and his father outing his beloved and, quote, to him, angelic mother pushed him over the edge, in my opinion, which fostered a deep hatred of women and that fueled his appetite for murder. But... What do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info, though I do love doing it. And I want to thank you. Yes, you so very much for listening. I appreciate it as you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.